Good morning or afternoon, as the case may be, and welcome to an ABI podcast on the ABI professional fee study concerning uh, professional fees in Chapter 11 cases. Uh, my name is Chip Bowles. I'm a director of the ABI and was the chair of the fee study. I'll be talking today with Professor Stephen Levin, uh, who is the reporter on the study, and will be able to give you a great deal of detail as to what the study has shown, what the study entailed, why the study is important, and where the ABI can go to here with the study. First, let me get you a bit of historical background. Uh, the ABI Chapter 11 fee study uh, really began in early 2004 with conversations by then ABI President Bettina White, Al Togut, and Deidre Martini talking about uh, the publicity that had been surrounding Chapter 11 fees uh, in particular, and generally bankruptcy fees in general and whether there was some way to do an empirical research to see if all the anecdotal stories on all sides uh, could either have verification or at least be able to get certain documentation about that. Um, their idea led to the formation of a fee study steering committee uh, and ultimately to the presentation and approval of a $350,000 grant from the ABI and the ABI Endowment Fund to fund the study. We were also uh, used to have the NCBJ agree to make an additional grant contribution uh, so that this grant could go forward. After obtaining the funding and approval for the grant, uh, the ABI Steering Committee and a Practitioner's Advisory Panel uh, for formulated from a large number of important and well-seasoned Chapter 11 professionals in the ABI was formed, basically to help with the, determining the study's parameters and also to select a study reporter. After a search of a number of prominent academics, uh, we, we found Stephen Levin, uh, who is the Daniel J. Moore Professor of Law at Seton Hall University, who agreed to be our study reporter. The study really began in earnest uh, at the end of 2004 and early 2005, with the beginning of data collection, and uh, continued on until the study was at its initial presentation at last year's 2007 Winter Leadership Conference. The study basically, from the ABI standpoint, represents uh, their commitment to professional fees and to bankruptcy scholarship in general. It was the, the ABI's commitment to the fee study was their largest uh, commitment to an independent scholastic study uh, in their history, and I think has gotten results, as you're going to see through this podcast, were well worth both the effort from all the people who participated in providing Stephen with documentation and the financial resources the ABI and the NCBJ devoted. Now, what was the fee study? That's where uh, your uh, chairperson of the fee study steering committee and practitioners panel's expertise ends and Professor Levins begins. Uh, Stephen, can you tell us a little bit about how we got to the fee study and what was the methodology? Well, uh, basically, we, we sat back and, and tried to decide exactly what we wanted to look at with regard to professional fees, and we noticed a couple of things. First of all, all most of the previous studies, especially the ones done by legal academics, were really directed at a particular slice of the Chapter 11 market. Uh, so we, one thing we wanted to do is make this the most comprehensive and broad-based study we could possibly get. At the same time, we... Uh, also understood that a lot of the really uh, glamorous or exciting debates about uh, Chapter 11 had been really focused on the very largest cases. Um, so we also wanted to, to be able to study those in, in extensive detail. So this actually resulted in, in us creating two databases, 
completely random sample of 945 Chapter 11 cases all filed in 2004. And then the other one is a uh, sample of just the biggest cases, as big cases as defined by bankruptcydata.com, that were also filed in 2004, and we, we selected every single big case, and that's a, a separate data set of 99 cases. I should probably also point out that there are 18 cases that appear in, in both data sets, so there's a little bit of overlap there. And, and basically, um, when you selected the data, we, we, we basically did a cross-section of each of the various circuits so that we, we wouldn't be highly weighted in any particular district or any particular district with uh, characteristics of like a, a big state, little state. Right. We, we selected uh, cases from three districts in each of the circuits, so they're really nicely spread out across the country. Of course, certain districts with very high populations, like the Southern District of New York, obviously have even more cases in other districts, but we do have a nice geographic spread. We also selected cases from half of the cases were selected uh, in the early months of the year, and then half of them were selected from June to December. Yeah, and, and one thing that made the study so special, I think, was, like you said, the size. Most other studies, due to literally just practical limitations, had only studied, I'd say, less than 100 cases. Yeah, no, no uh, study that I'm aware of had a even over 100 cases until this one. And, of course, now we have a, you know, in the random sample, uh, 945 cases. And then even in the big case sample, 99 cases, I believe, is much larger than, than any previous study, which usually uh, were somewhere around 40 or 50 cases. And literally that was made possible, as I always say, by the wonders of technology. Since uh, the people who worked on the practitioners panel the steering committee were able to download hundreds of thousands of pages of documents from PACER, which uh, you and your student and other associates were able to put into a gargantuan database. Um, can you describe just a little bit the size of the database that we had? Well, I mean, again, I think you're absolutely right. This is really, to do a study like this prior to the existence of PACER would have taken, at the very least, much longer and would have cost even more money um, because we, we have really thousands the PDF of pleadings from these Chapter 11 cases, and they're all on a server here at Seton Hall. Um, I don't remember offhand exactly how, how big that server is, but I know, I know, you know, even one of these large cases, you're, you're talking about, you know, thousands of docket entries that were potentially relevant to us, and we pulled them all down, and we've got them all here on the server at Seton Hall, and it's uh, definitely uh, the wonders of technology fed this up and made it much cheaper than it would have otherwise been. The other thing that was uh, what I'll call a useful uh, side effect, but also I think is one of the importance of the study, is the fact that you were able to get generalized data about Chapter 11. Um, tell us about the time frame for the Chapter 11 study and just some of the characteristics you found financially about the debtors. Well, again, we've got sort of two data sets we're working here with the, the random data set, and that's the big one with 945 cases in it. Um, the average debtor has got assets of 20, about $21 million. That's as reported on the schedules. Average debt is about $37 million. Um, and the big case sample, on the other hand, is you know an order of magnitude much larger than that. It's, we have average asset size of about $423 million, average debt size of $777 million. So you can really, I think one of the nice things that this study really highlights is the fact that we have 
even within Chapter 11, almost two distinct uh, worlds, if you will, that are, are operating here because uh, the the range of cases in the random sample in particular, it really runs down from cases with assets of just about $10,000 all the way up to, you know, cases like USA where you have over a billion dollars. Um, also much less likely to find publicly traded companies in the, the random sample. I think only about 10% of them are publicly traded, whereas over half of the cases in the big case sample are publicly traded. So in other words, it does show, I guess, what every bankruptcy practitioner had always known, that there there were two types of Chapter 11s. And while they were at least governed by the same code, the the basic economic factors of them made them a very far different set of animals for how they were going to be practiced and how they were going to be reorganized, sold, or whatever their result would be. Sure, I, 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 and I agree with you. I, I bet that every practitioner knew that already. I'm not sure every academic knew that already. <laughs> <laughs> well, getting that information is always good. Let, let me just tell you, some of the other things that we found just from the general timing, you know, for years there's always been, at least in the public arena, the argument that Chapter 11 drag on forever. Uh, what did you find about the time in Chapter 11 from both samples? You know, it's it's actually very interesting. The vast majority of these cases are actually resolved very quickly, especially compared with what you, you know, would have heard, you know, 10 or 15 years ago about Chapter 11. Um, there, you know, on average, we have most of these cases being resolved in, you know, just just under a year in the case of the random sample or just over a year in the case of the big case sample. Um, but otherwise, just around the one-year mark, the vast majority of these, of these cases are being resolved. And by resolved, I mean either we have a confirmed plan or the case has been converted to seven or something like that. So, But the Chapter 11 part of it is done within a year, and I think somewhere around 80% of the cases, 85% of the cases. So I think that will be surprising to a lot of people who really have in their minds uh, some case like Eastern Airlines or Pan Am as being the prototypical Chapter 11 case. Uh, yes, never-ending Chapter 11 of legend and lore, looking for a way out or just deciding to operate in Chapter 11 as a business model. And what you said, especially in the larger cases where most of the, you know, at least the public uh, questioning had come about, they, 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 did, they seem to try to get them out of there as fast as they can. Right, right. Yep. One other, one other thing I was going to ask about in uh, the general case model that you found for information is did you find, uh, as a general rule, what what was the result of these cases? Were there mainly conversions or sales, or did a lot of them get confirmed? Uh, it really depends on you know which sample we're talking about. Um, in the random sample, actually the most likely outcome is going to be dismissal. I guess the other thing that I think it highlights is the fact that the bankruptcy judges seem to be doing a pretty good job of filtering, you know, the viable cases from the unviable cases, especially in the small business context. Okay. Well, what was some, let's get to what the study was about. What was some of the basic data and basic information you found on professional fees in both the random and the big case samples? Well, uh, at the most basic level, I think... Uh, you could say that the total cost in the random sample on average was about $433,000. And then on average in the big case sample, it was about $7.1 million uh, for average total cost. But again, there's a lot of variation case to case uh, between these. I guess the other 
sort of interesting point I'll point out here is, is that debtors' uh, expenses are really still the bulk of the total expenses. The debtor represents a little over 88% of the total cost in the random sample and just about 80% of the total cost in the big case sample. And um, even within that, the, the, the single biggest item in, in both samples is still the debtor's lead counsel. Um, debtor's lead counsel represents about 40% of the total cost in the big cases, where you might think that, that you know that, that's some serious money. But even in the in the random sample, they represent about 55% on average of the total cost. So, um, although there's been a lot of attention paid recently to investment bankers and the sometimes eye-popping uh, you know, bonuses they can get in particular cases, on average, it's still this is still largely an attorney-driven process. And one other thing, I think you made this point in an earlier article you had on um, on studying professional fees is. A lot of the expenses, especially professional expenses, are basically professional expenses not driven by the bankruptcy process, but just professional expenses, attorneys, investment bankers that these companies would have even if they weren't in bankruptcy. Yeah, that's actually not a point that comes directly out of this study, but out of a different data set I had. And I, but I think it is good to mention here too is is that we're sort of covering, you know, capturing total legal expenses, but. People often forget that, you know, especially the big corporations, they, they pay for a lot of money for professionals, whether they're in bankruptcy or out of bankruptcy. And in the, the other paper you're referring to, I uh, actually looked at what kind of attorneys we were talking about, and a lot of the attorneys are not bankruptcy attorneys that uh, appear on bankruptcy fee applications. And one thing also I want to get to uh, is um, in doing the model, how did you uh, basically be able to account for the various factors and independent variables you'd have on influencing uh, the costs in Chapter 11 cases. But basically, since I was a statistics, I got a B in statistics, so that's about the limit of my knowledge of it. What was the basic regression model and other things you did to basically account for that in the study? Well, that's, uh, you're absolutely right. We had to do a multivariate regression model to really account for a lot, all the variation in the uh, in the particular cases, as I indicated, we, we can sort of tell you what the average cost is and the complex debtor size, in this case, measured by assets plus debt, plus a variety of variables that capture case complexity, like, for example, were there first day motions in the case. Um, these variables explain a, a, a really large amount of the variance in professional fees. In other words, we can say a lot about professional fees, especially in the big cases, by a model that sort of accounts for size and complexity. Um, the interesting thing here is almost what is not apparently important in explaining professional fees, namely the time spent in Chapter 11, which has previously been found to be an important factor, is actually not, in my model, uh, significant. It doesn't explain a lot of the, the cost of Chapter 11, and I think that's because we now have, in my model, a little more sophisticated controls for complexity, and I think the previous models have found time was important for probably really measuring complexity, not actual time or duration. So time is one thing you might think would be important, and it actually isn't. The other other thing that I checked out uh, was, first of all, it didn't matter if the case was filed either in the Southern District or in Delaware, and neither seemed to be significant. And also, it didn't seem to be significant if the lead counsel was Skadden or Wild Gotchel. I checked both of those. Um, Skadden in particular has been 
pause this week's podcast to bring you bankruptcy in the news. Supporters of legislation to allow bankruptcy judges to restructure home mortgages on the verge of foreclosure renewed their push for passage of H.R. 3609 at a congressional hearing this week. Movement on the bill has been stymied by the mortgage industry, which contends that the bill could increase interest rates by as much as 2%. The full House Judiciary Committee narrowly approved the bill last December, but Judiciary Chairman John Conyers of Michigan took the rare step of scheduling another hearing on the bill to bolster support. The economic stimulus package currently being considered by Congress does not contain language regarding home mortgage modification. So Representative Brad Miller of North Carolina, the sponsor of H.R. 3609, said that he's focusing efforts on persuading House leadership to set a floor vote on his bill. Meanwhile, the FBI has opened criminal inquiries into 14 companies as part of a wide-ranging investigation of the troubled mortgage industry. The FBI said that it was looking into possible accounting fraud, insider trading, or other violations in connection with loans made to borrowers with weak or subprime credit. The agency declined to identify the companies under investigation, but said that the inquiry, which began last spring, involves companies across the financial industry, including mortgage lenders, loan brokers, and Wall Street banks that package home loans into securities. This has been John Hartgen of the ABI. Thank you for listening, and now back to this week's podcast. Well, in your model, what were the main factors that you found that had an influence on case uh, fee size? Um, Other than the debtor size that you talked about. Right. Well... Um, the number of professionals, in particular, um, I have a simple yes or no variable that asks, did the debtor employ three or more additional professionals? Additional professionals is beyond debtor's counsel. Uh, the three or more number on the debtor's side seems to be an important tipping point, uh, so that if you go over three or more additional debtor professionals, uh, you're talking about a, a more expensive case. Uh, this is... Uh, in one sense, obvious, because you're just increasing the number of professionals, but also I think it reflects the complexity. Not The case itself becomes more complex, and also even the pre-existing professionals like debtors' counsel have, now have more parties to interact with, to deal with, to coordinate the case, and so that's going to increase costs. The other similar factor was whether or not a committee was appointed in the case. Um, once again, on some level, this is obvious. You know, if a committee is appointed, they're likely to retain professionals. That's, that's going to increase costs. But also remember, again, that the appointment of the committee means that's one more person the debtor's counsel has got to coordinate with. So we're not only increasing costs because of the addition of additional professionals, but we're also increasing the, the workload for debtor's counsel. Um, and then I think I already mentioned, if there's first-day motions in the case, again, that's an indicator of a case the other big significant one was the highest hourly rate for the debtors' lead counsel. Um, the highest hourly rate is not really the rate that's going to be charged all that often in the case, but it does give some indication of a law firm with a higher overall rate structure. Um, again, on one level, this, this finding is, is obvious, all else equal. You've got to, if you're charging 
higher hourly rates, of course, there's going to be more expenses. But it also reflects the fact that when you have a case with that kind of high hourly rate structure, we're usually talking about the very largest cases in the sample, cases like um, some of the automotive bankruptcies, some of the airline bankruptcies, um, cases like this where you have sort of a lot of contentious issues and also a very complicated corporate structure. And you also usually have, uh, you know, a pretty big New York law firm that believes there's counsel. Well, have you been able to apply your model to any particular case and see how it works in the real world? <laughs> well, I actually did. Um, in uh, connection with the presentation at Winter Leadership, I uh, applied the model to the Kmart case, which is not a 2004 case. I believe they were filed around 2002. Um, but it was a case that uh, Professor Lopucky examined in one of his articles as well. So this also gives us the opportunity to compare not only my model with the reality in Kmart, but also my model with, with his model. Um, so basically, we, I went through and plugged in the real numbers from Kmart to, uh, to my model. And you come up with, on my model, a predicted uh, fees could be, uh, well, well, let me say this, this. The prediction for the fees is $104 million in my model. Uh, but they could be as low as about $6.5 million. It could be as high as $135 million. Um, and Professor Lopucky's model, on the other hand, is predicting fees of about $71 million. Um, the actual fees were $134 million and change in Kmart. Uh, so obviously, Professor Lopucky, when he predicts $71 million in fees, says, wow, you know, Kmart was well above what I predicted. Um, although if you, if you followed all these numbers here, you actually see that the actual fees in Kmart were just with inside my range of what I would predict. That is, I predicted these could be as high as 135 million, and they turned out to be 134 million. Um, so, you know, this actually, to my mind, suggests that Kmart is not, you know, outside the, the normal range as, uh, as has previously been alleged. Um, I also, you know, suggest even if you don't look at the ranges, but even at the predictions, my prediction is coming up a lot closer to to what the reality looks like. So I, I suggest that that means, you know, this is a much uh, more useful model going forward, and I'm, I'm looking forward to extending it to other cases. Yeah. You know, we, being able to do that, I think uh, at least giving some predictive tool is going to be very helpful. Um, won't be the be-all and end-all. How did it work uh, for the random sample cases? Uh, do you have a predictive model that works in there? Well, we we sort of extend the same model to the random sample. Um, and you, we ha you get a pretty good fit. It's not nearly as high. Um, for those of you who are up, up on your statistics, we uh, when we apply the model to the big case sample, we have R squared numbers that are over 0.9, which is really kind of amazing. Um, which means we're explaining more than 90% uh, of the total variance. Um, on, when we apply the model to the random sample, we, we only explain about 77% of the total variance. So it's not quite as good of a fit. In part, it's because there's a lot more variation in these random cases. There, there seems to be a lot more um, case-specific factors that can influence the overall cost. Um, one interesting thing, though, about applying the model to the random sample is, is that there actually is a suggestion now in the model. It's, it's 
kind of faint, but it's there, that the Southern District of New York is actually cheaper than all other districts, which is, I think, not what most people would have predicted ahead of time. Yeah, that that is in fact a surprise because normally with the with the fee structures you've always had associated with Southern District of New York, you would think that there would be an increase. But showing there's a decrease, I guess, shows there's efficiency. Uh, in other words, you get what you pay for when you have professional fees. Yeah, exactly. And I think you know it could be too that we may have a lot of uh, very uh, experienced Chapter 11 practitioners in New York who are you know, especially in these smaller cases, are used to handling a lot of a high volume of uh, small business Chapter 11 cases and are reasonably efficient at, at, at doing so. Hmm. Uh, the other thing is, did you find anything odd about what happened to professionals getting any types of payment in the random sample? Well, that's actually, I think, a very, very interesting point. There's a, a large number of uh, professionals in the random sample who get no payment at all. Um, about 34% of the cases there's no payment at all. And we're talking about no payment even apparently pre-bankruptcy because when I measure total professional fees throughout this study, I'm including not just the stuff incurred during bankruptcy, but also the uh, the amount reported on the Statement of Financial Affairs as the pre-bankruptcy, bankruptcy-related expenses. Um, and we have 34% of the cases in the random sample which just have a zero. Uh, no reported fees, either pre-bankruptcy or post-bankruptcy, at least during the Chapter 11 period. Now, most of these cases are ones that are either dismissed or converted pretty fast, but that does suggest that there is a, a fair degree of risk, especially in the smaller cases for practitioners who take these cases without any sort of retainer. Yeah. Something that I don't think has gotten a great deal of press, but I think is important to note, especially in the non-giant cases. Right. People do run a great risk of either small or no payment whatsoever. Right. Well, let's put it this way. what We've, we've done the modeling. We've shown our regression. We've gotten all the various things we can out of the fee study. And, you know, a massive task is over. You know, what are some of the main, you know, Final closing remarks uh, that you think uh, that you found were interesting or surprising if you stay, and where are you going from here? Well, if I, I guess I start with the last question first. Uh, the, the results of the fee study, they've been published on the CD by uh, the ABI, but they'll also be coming out in, a, in an article form, law review article form, in the American Bankruptcy Law Journal. That should be out in a couple of months. Um, but this is really just sort of a, uh, a snapshot of the of the lay of the land, I would say, at this point in time. What I hope to do going forward is actually sort of dig down a little deeper. Now that we know we have a picture of, of what the professional fee landscape looks like, I'm going to, uh, going to focus in on some particular issues that I'm interested in. Um, we have, as you've indicated, a wealth of data here about Chapter 11 cases generally, so even non-fee-related uh, research I'd like to look at. Well, one of the first things I'm actually working on, which I think is pretty interesting, is, is we're comparing uh, right now the big case sample with a similar sample that a colleague of mine in the Netherlands has uh, pulled uh, based on Dutch bankruptcy cases, which sort of going to do a, a cross-border comparison of total professional costs in the two systems to give us another kind of benchmark for the Chapter 11 system, namely how does Chapter 11 fare cost-wise in comparison with uh, similarly sized Dutch bankruptcies. Hmm. Well, that'll be good. Are you going to 
do anything on trying to eliminate what I'll call the the constant legal fee cost from just the pure Chapter 11 cost to see if there what impact that has on uh, figuring out what the percentage uh, fees are in bankruptcy. You know, it's something I, I would certainly like to do. It's, it's a very labor-intensive process. Uh, even in the prior article, when I did it based on a much smaller sample, it, it requires somebody to go, you know, through the, the pleadings by hand and basically make a determination as to whether or not a particular attorney is a bankruptcy attorney or not. Um, so uh, let me just suggest I may go for the lo- lower-hanging fruit first. <laughs> well, that's good. Um, one thing I just always want to mention, this was a unique study because we actually had to change a couple of districts due to Hurricane Katrina. Yeah, that was actually uh, uh, two districts were in the in the area, one in Louisiana and one in Mississippi were both in areas that were heavily hit by uh, Hurricane Katrina. So kind of mid-study, we, we substituted in neighboring districts um, in both cases within the same state because I wanted to make sure there was no change in the background state debtor creditor law. It could affect our results, but uh, I guess one of the uh, one of the things you learn from doing a study like this is is that you have to be uh, a little a little nimble. It never goes exactly as planned. Not only exactly as planned, but you never can depend on the weather. Right. Um, and with that, uh, Stephen, I want to thank you for being here and being able to talk about the few studies in this podcast. I'd like to find, thank all the listeners out there on behalf of the ABI. Uh, for being interested in the ABI's podcast series and being interested in the Chapter 11 Professional Fees Study in particular. So thank you very much for your kind attention and enjoy the rest of your day.